0: Everybody, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. Man, we're going to have a great morning. Uh, John Ramstead here. Sandra crawford Wilmson, how you doing?
1: I'm great, John. I'm really excited about today's show. We've got a, a wonderful management leadership consultant here. He's got just an amazing following and a great story. So welcome
2: to the show, Biagio. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you, John.
0: You're welcome. And it's Biage Shaka, everybody. But this is, you know, we're going to go high. We're going to do a little Italian lesson here because it's Biage. It, it looks like it's, it's well, phonetically, Biagio. And then it's S C I A C C A for people that want to follow on and look up Biage. Now, Biage, I'm sure your, your friends uh, have shortened all that down. What do they call you? Uh, Bill. Okay. Well, we're going to go with Bill, although I enjoyed my Italian lesson. So everybody out there listening, you know, Bill, absolutely a dynamic speaker out there. Uh, He just has a way of kind of melding together the social sciences, the humanities, and and with plain old common sense to create this unique uh, kind of action-packed message. And we're all about taking action, making things practical here that really connects, you know, with how to motivate yourself and enthusiasm and, Um, Over the years, Bill, you've owned an award-winning consulting and trading organization, a chain of donut and ice cream franchises, two of my favorite things, by the way. Uh, (laughs) My wife, she loves all the fancy desserts, and I'm like, yeah, you know, why don't you order that, and we'll go to Ben & Jerry's on the way home. Uh, Several businesses, automotive, car care, consulting company with actually thousands of clients, multinationals, Fortune 500. But when you reached out to us, and we kind of looked at your story, I got to tell you, there's some been some significant things that have happened to you just as you've journeyed through life and business. And uh, I got to tell you some things that I think will really be encouraging, exhorting, hopeful to people. And so what I'd like to do, Bill, is just kind of go back and rewind a bit and have you just share a little bit about your journey.
2: All right. Well, it all started September 25th, 1957, when Lucy Shaka was brought to the hospital. Just kidding. I won't go back that far. I have uh, my undergraduate degree, believe it or not, is in philosophy and sociology. We were all kind of hippies back in the 70s, but I immediately found the error of my ways when I took a job as a juvenile probation officer and hightailed it back for a master's in business where I was introduced to the social science that changed my life, economics. I got my MBA, started teaching economics in 1982, and I never stopped. And uh, that was really transformational to me. Over the years, and I've I've been in higher education my entire career. Mostly, it was adjunct. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Sandra, I don't know if you're familiar with the term adjunct. It's a, it's an academic term meaning you're not going to get paid a lot and there's no benefits. Uh, <laughs>
0: actually, <laughs> yeah, Sandra just became an adjunct professor, so I'm sure she can relate to that. Are you so a full sadly, professor?
1: Sadly, sadly, yes. sadly, yes. yes.
2: But uh, for uh, 11 years or so, I was a full-time professor at at Penn State University, But uh, so I I kind of flipped. But I was always in management and leadership, and uh, my consulting company for 25 years never really went away. It's now on the front burner. I do all of my work right here from my home. I live in uh, Tamarindo, Costa Rica. I'm on the Pacific coast of Costa Rica, uh, and that's where I'm talking to you from right now.
0: Well, my son actually uh Bill uh, did a mission trip. They were supposed to go to uh Sierra Leone, but Ebola had broken out. This was a couple of years ago in high school. So they ended up going to San Jose in Costa Rica and working in the the slums to build homes and uh my son was, you know, growing up in, you know, middle-class America here in Colorado. Gets down to Costa Rica and and, uh, you know, the this little uh, uh, Rio Negro, right, the Black River that's taking all the waste out of this area. There's very mm-hmm. little, you know, even power. They were building a home for a family. One of the things that was absolutely transformative for him is the first night they were there and, you know, the living conditions were terrible. It's outside of a dump. They went to a church service and it was all in Spanish, which he could kind of, you know, uh, mostly understand. But he said the joy the, the depth of worship, the praising uh that was going on in that church was beyond anything he'd ever experienced, and to realize that the god they're serving is the God that you know he grew up with and you know in our family in Colorado changed uh his view of of the who God is what he's doing in this world, and that that actually led him to now be doing outreaches and mission work ever since interesting interesting yeah uh
2: Costa Rica is a fairly Religious country and uh, very, very tight, tight family ties. Whenever I teach economics, I always compare gross domestic product to the happy planet index. And <laughs> uh, I think Costa Rica is about like 98 or 99 in terms of gross domestic product. But over the last 10 years, it was number one in the happy planet index uh, for three years out of 10. No kidding.
1: Wow. Wow. That's incredible.
2: Yeah, this is a happy place to live.
1: It's a beautiful place for sure. Yes.
0: Now you've had a lot of different kind of goes at some different businesses. I know you had some some business failures, some business successes. Uh, you know, and through that, you talk about really it's kind of how your faith in Jesus really got you through that process. And I'd love for you to kind of take us back and just kind of walk through some of those. Right? You mentioned economics has been a passion for you.
2: Yes, it has. I wouldn't say there were any business failures. I would say there were business successes and business tuitions. Mm,
0: uh, <laughs> good. I like how you're looking at that, Bill. That's awesome.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I uh, I was uh, in um, a business uh, for uh, a number of years. Uh, and it was, uh, I, I was uh, the running it. It was a, a $10 million business. You don't realize that a donut shop could actually do something like that. You go in there and, you know, you, you buy a coffee and two donuts and it's like three fifty, But yet uh, you put enough of them together and you could string along a $10, $12 million business pretty easily. I had some, let's just say, partner issues. Mm. And uh, at one point, uh, everything just went south. And when I say it went south, I mean it went south very quickly. There was, uh, people were missing, gigantic sums of money were missing, and I was kind of left holding the bag. Put me under about $1.2 million. Basically everything I had and everything my parents had left me was gone. And it happened very quickly. I was in such disarray that uh, along with losing all my businesses and all my wealth, I happened to lose my wife, I happened to lose my children. I lost the house I was living in, and uh, it was a pretty difficult time. When you start getting letters in the mail that happen to be about three inches thick on a weekly basis, where the last paragraph is, if you haven't read the last three inches, here's what we're saying. We're going to destroy your life. And that was basically where I was at. Now, uh, John, Sandra, I will tell you, I grew up uh, Roman Catholic. I was fairly uh, uh, close to my faith uh, throughout uh, most of my uh, childhood and adult life. As a matter of fact, even as a child, uh, when um, uh, my friends said that they were going to skip going to Mass on Sunday morning, they would give me the envelope because they knew I would go to church and I would put the envelope in the basket and not take the money from it.
1: (laughs) In fact, you grew up in a really scrappy part of the country in the coal mining district um, Northeast Pennsylvania. And so growing up in that environment, I have friends that grew up there, and really super, super Catholic altar boys, all of that stuff. And I think just the strong work work ethic and and desire to sort of you know raise yourself above your upbringing, if you will, was probably a big driver for you. Is that true?
2: Sandy, you you nailed it. I mean, I'll tell you what. I grew up in a house that had a dirt cellar and a coal furnace. Mm. Uh, My mother and father never earned more than $20,000 a year, and that was combined. So for for me to graduate college and then get a master's degree and then eventually make it a PhD, I I mean, now my parents were long dead after I got my doctorate. And uh, of course, they were never even around. They were dead 10 years when I published my first book. But I don't know. I, I mean, I have a feeling... That uh, my mother is probably uh, taking a copy of the book to St. Peter and saying, look at this. Mm,
1: Absolutely. (laughs) And, you know, John and I both raised very scrappy and uh, and, in different parts of the country but same thing i mean that that upbringing is really what has been a driver for us and you probably supported your parents too you know after achieving your level of success and i think what i've seen with folks that had those types of upbringing it just gives you an amazing perspective on the world doesn't it
2: it gives you a very interesting worldview. And you, you know you, you really need to be able to um, take it into your heart. Now, I, I will tell you that there was a time there when I lost everything and I lost my faith also. Uh, I used to have a bottle of holy water that I kept in the car and uh, I would actually take a couple drops out and make the sign of the cross before I start driving. (laughs) But as things started to develop and as I ran out of money and ran out of ideas and I was basically devoid of any insight into where my future was going to go, I never filled up the bottle of holy water. It was dried out. And Mm. one day I looked at that bottle and I saw that it was dry. And it occurred to me that I am just as dry as this bottle. However, I knew what I needed to do. All I had to do was go to the church and fill up the bottle with holy water, which I did. Mm. And being in that church, everything came back. And by everything... What I meant was when Jesus said, forgive 70 times seven, what he meant was that there are no justified resentments. You cannot go through life resenting anybody for anything. And I forgave my business partners at that point. I forgave my wife. I forgave my children. None of them talked to me even to this day, but that doesn't matter. I didn't forgive them for them. I forgave them for me. And that's when things changed. That's when I got a full-time job at Penn State. That's when I got my first book on goal setting out. And things started to rock and roll. My consulting business came back and everything started to roll again. Not that the world changed. My perspective did. And that was everything.
3: We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. When you factor in all the hours it takes to read a single book, it's really an investment. Or if you're like John and listen to audiobooks, even at 1.5 speed, that's even more time. I just downloaded Eric Metaxas' Bonhoeffer on Audible, and it's almost a 23-hour-long book. Well, John and I are big fans of a book summary service called Blinkist. Blinkist has a library of more than 2,500 of the top books on the market. Most of them can be read in less than 15 minutes, so... Imagine taking all the key thoughts and stories of a book and distilling it down into a 15-minute read. That's what Blinkist does. Whether you're interested in leadership, marketing, entrepreneurship, personal development, sales, management, motivation, psychology, economics, finance, self-help, even marriage, parenting, history, and more, Blinkist has something for just about everyone. If you click the link embedded in the summary of this MP3 or go to eternalleadership.com slash blink, that's eternalleadership.com slash blink, you can try them for a seven-day free trial. And if you subscribe by clicking that affiliate link, it's a great way to help get a great service and help support the cost of editing and hosting this podcast. So go to eternalleadership.com slash blink to check out Blinkist. Thanks.
0: Uh, and, And Bill, that perspective that changed, because the book that you just wrote is called Goals Book, Embracing Personal Responsibility in an Age of Entitlement, and I'm a huge proponent of personal responsibility. But for you, how would you describe that shift that happened?
2: Well, when you ask others to dictate your future for you, you become a victim, You're a victim, you become a tool in their goals program and not necessarily your own. Now I knew about this for a number of years and writing goals book was more therapeutic. It is about picking yourself up and doing what you need to do when you need to do it to be successful. Are there going to be roadblocks? Are there going to be issues? Of course there are. But when you look at those issues as kind of divine providence that this is what's going to make you stronger it compels you. When you go to the gym, you don't look at the weights and build muscle. You pick them up and struggle and grunt and make funny noises. That's what makes the muscle. It's the same thing in life. And as we go through these obstacles, we have to be thankful. We have to generate gratitude for those obstacles because it's those very obstacles that make us stronger.
1: Mm, Absolutely. Lifting the weights, lifting the weights. That's beautiful. So when you had this moment where you walked back in the church, I mean, I know there are a lot of listeners out there, Bill, that are, that are struggling with things and relationships and they're carrying heavy, heavy burdens that they need to lay down. What was, I mean, walk us through just very practically when you walked out with this new perspective, you know, what did you do?
2: Well, after I changed my perspective, I really didn't do anything I looked at the phone calls I was getting. I looked at the emails I was getting, and I viewed them as opportunities. I worked myself out of the struggle with the financial side. And um, lo and behold, I was teaching uh, economics for a number of years at a community college. It just so happens I got a call from one of the campuses of Penn State. Their economics professor died halfway through the semester. They needed somebody to teach the rest of the semester. Now, this was 12 credits, four courses, and they were in such struggle. They called the local community college and asked if they knew of an economics professor. And the head of the economics department, uh, I knew him very well. His father used to cut my hair. He -hmm. said, call Shaka. He called me. So I got a call, and I went up to the Penn State campus. I sat down, and he explained the situation. I didn't have anything to do. I was unwinding from these uh, donut shops right now. He said, how many credits can you take of the 12? I said, I'll take them all. His jaw dropped. I think it hit the desk. It's like I was his angel. Mm. And... Uh, next semester, the full-time position opened up, and I was the logical conclusion for it. I took that. I start writing. I start consulting again. And one thing led to another, and it bought my condo in Costa Rica. And here we are as a result of not only the transformation that occurred in the church, but as a result of going through those business issues. If I never had those business issues, I yeah, may you know. Been-
1: I was coaching a a guy last night, and he's going through some stuff, and, you know, one of the things that John and I always talk about is God wastes nothing. I mean, we go through some yucky stuff, and I mean, losing our loved ones, losing our businesses, and health. I mean, John and I both have had drastic health experiences, and so, but, you know, God, every single time has used every piece of that awfulness for some good. And that is a great example in your story of that very thing. And now here you are on the other side of that. Gosh, 30 years later, right?
2: And, more or less.
1: Yeah. And here you are um, with this incredible story and incredible testimony. And, you know, this book is really cool. I'm going to really focus on the book for a second because it's not just a book. It's a goals book that really helps people kind of get up and get going. Right. Can you share a little bit about it?
2: Oh, sure. I've read a lot of books on goal setting and most of them were fill in the blanks. They were forms that you had to fill out. And uh, when I started to write a book on goal setting, I found out that it was gaunt. It was angular. It was as dry as sawdust. (laughs) And uh, I took about 250 pages and threw it away. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm going to write a book on goal setting. That's a story. It's a parable. And that's exactly what it is. It's a parable about a young man who gets taken under the wing of the CEO and the CEO of the company that he works for sends him to different people to explain goal setting. And here's the model that it's built on. It's built on the definition of success, the progressive realization of worthwhile, predetermined personal goals. I love that definition, by the way. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, Uh, I can't take credit for it. That comes from Paul Meyer, SMI, LMI out of Waco, Texas. I was a franchise of his organizations for a long time, Mm -hmm. and that's where I got the definition from. And then the notion of goal setting is specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, timely and tangible. Every one of those words has the CEO sending the young man to a different person to learn something about success and how success builds into goal setting. The whole book came out to about 150 pages. You could literally read it in a day. And I found that individuals have liked it. They've liked it so much that I put a sequel out to uh, Gold's book that I uh, I very originally called Gold's book two. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I'm in the process now of looking at goals book three, developing a vision and mission for your life based on goal setting.
1: You talk about persistent goal setting. Can you tell us what you mean by that?
2: Sure. I have in front of me now my journal journal. And I have December goals on top of every page and I have October goals. Uh, At the beginning of October, I'll have November goals put on there. And uh, then I'm going to set my goals for, I already have my goals for 2019. And I'm going to set up a decomposition process for accomplishing those goals every single month. It's persistent. It's a habit. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you don't fret about brushing your teeth. You just get up and do it that's a habit that's how we have to look at goals we have to make goals persistent they have to be habitual
0: well amen yeah and you know some of the times where i've probably been most alive uh bill i bet you can relate to this is you know it's those times when i'm actually pursuing worthwhile dreams and goals right i'm i'm putting in the work i'm getting out of my comfort zone i'm actually doing things maybe uh, i don't enjoy but I'm willing to do it because I know it's going to get, like when I went through flight school, started my company, when my wife and I went through some marriage problems, there's different times in my life, but I think back, I'm like, you know, that's the time, man, that was just vibrant going through that. And what I found, though, right, it has to be this worthwhile dream or goal. So this can't be a goal that we think we should have or has maybe been imposed on us by what I call the tyranny of they, what are some of the things that you talk about that help people actually take that goal and actually connect it to something that is actually important to them at their core that would allow them to take responsibility for the work that's needed to accomplish that goal, to be motivated
2: What an excellent, excellent question, thank you. One of the things I do whenever I'm coaching anybody or even in my face-to-face training classes, I ask them this question, what are you passionate about? Mm. Okay, you can't develop a life mission and a legacy if you aren't doing what you're passionate about. So you've gotta find that passion. Once you find that passion, the daily pursuit of goals to manifest that passion is a logical conclusion. And here's the value of that. If you have fear, worry, doubt, and indecision, once you start moving toward your passion, those things evaporate. You're not going to be a worrisome person anymore. You're not going to be a fearful person anymore because you are working on what you love. The question is you have to decide on that. Earl Nightingale said it best 60 years ago. I think it was. He said, I can help a person get Anything they want out of life. The problem is most people don't know what they want. Focus. Focus on that bracket focus, as they say in uh, tank school. And Mm -hmm. uh, as you uh, go through that process, you become fearless and you stop worrying. Mm. (laughs)
1: If only if only we could just take that to heart and really stop worrying because, you know, our country today is filled with anxiety and worry and, you know, all these medications people mm-hmm. are taking for all of those things. And so you really hit the nail on the head. I mean, I know everyone out there is listening and we all have this list of things that we're constantly stressed about and worried about. I love your your approach because you take that and you really, you embrace it, and, but you turn it into... And to something real, oh. you know you talk about character quite a bit. And John and I talk about character. You know, the way you put it, I believe, is really neat. You say that character is a leader's greatest asset. Can you, you know, just give us your point of view on that?
2: Sure, absolutely. Any leader, that is responsible for other people. Well, really it's a symbiotic relationship. You have to say you want to lead and people say that they want to follow. You know, we have an old saying in leadership theory, if you think you're leading and you turn around and nobody's following, you're just taking a walk, right? (laughs) So so there, there has to be this symbiosis occurring here. And the fact is, is that the leader is getting as much out of the process as the follower. When you hold the responsibility for other people in your hands, that means that every action you have is multiplied by the number of people that you come into contact with. And then it's multiplied again by the number of people that they come into contact with and so forth. Your behavior is exponential. You better guard it well, and you better do the correct thing, even if it's not the most popular thing, and even if it's a thing that you don't like. That's character. It's doing the right thing, even if it's not the happiest thing to do, or if it's not the most conducive thing, but it's doing the right thing. Mm. Well,
0: and you know that gets back to your whole topic of personal responsibility. An example of this, right? If I have an anger issue, and a lot of times – you know, when you hear somebody talking about their anger issue, they put it in context of other people, right? Like, Hey, Bill, you made me so angry when you did this, Mm -hmm. right? That actually, I'm making a choice. I'm choosing to let myself be angry in response to maybe something you did in personal responsibility about how we think, how we react to situations. are, Are we a victim or a victor? Some of the things you talked about, right? For our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, repeated actions or habits. So a lot of this is rooted in our our experience, our behaviors, our baggage. I mean, it's kind of a complex area, but taking that personal responsibility is a big first step. What are some things people can do to actually start
2: seeing, you know, doing more of that in their lives? That's an excellent question. And it's something that that I I hear a lot being asked, how do I develop personal responsibility? Here's something that I would suggest to your listeners. Stop asking permission. Do things. Just do them. Take a chance. And, you know, when you say say stop asking permission, what do you mean by that? Well, in my management training, uh, I talk about a concept called managerial codependency. Where mm-hmm. an a, an employee comes in to you and says, "Hey, boss, we have a problem. What should I do? Do this." Now, what you've just done is you've set up this this uh, this process where, whenever they have a problem, they come to you because it's the path of least resistance your job as a manager is eventually to get them to work on the problem by themselves and report back to you and you do that by questioning them by making them feel a little uncomfortable getting them outside their comfort zone what would you do give me a couple options which option do you want to work on the employees going to leave feeling uncomfortable but the goal is to get them to stop coming into your office and saying hey boss we have a problem what should I do to instead come into your office and say hey boss we had a problem here's what I did And that's where I view the notion of personal responsibility. Take action as a start. Now, I'm not suggesting if you're an employee and you think you need more room in the office that you call a contractor and build a 50,000 square foot addition to your office space. What I am suggesting, though, is that you look at the things that you have control over and take control over them. Don't necessarily wait for somebody else to give you the answer. If you've overstepped your bounds, somebody will tell you. But my thought is on this process is to gain personal responsibility. Take some type of action.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's you talk about the codependency. I mean, we Sometimes if a manager is insecure, they might even foster that by, you know, micromanaging and, you know, people being fearful of even having their own idea. So no matter what type of manager you are, I mean, I think that's really something to think about.
2: I think so. And I think that if, as a manager and a leader, if we can foster personal responsibility in our employees, then they're going to be coming back to us and they're going to be reporting what they did. Look, if they did something incorrect, we obviously have to tell them about that.
1: Right. Right. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think that when we're talking about goal setting and we're talking about character and we're talking about ways to take our, our lives to the next level. You have some great material. And so I want people to be able to get in touch with you and get your newsletter and all that stuff. So how can people get in touch and stay in touch and get dialed in and connected?
2: Oh, I I appreciate that, Sandra. One of the best things you could do is go to uh, my website, intelligentmotivationinc.com. Email me at bill at Inc. On the website, the upper right hand corner, there's a place to set up a call with me. There's a couple of options to set up different calls. Feel free to call, whatever I can do to assist you in that process. I will let you know also, uh, John, I emailed you last night a copy of my latest ebook called High Octane Leadership yes. Pole Position Performance. It's a real quick read. It's 52 pages. The audio version is out, and it's really designed around looking at contemporary managers and what they've done to be high-octane leaders. And can
0: we put that in our show notes page for our audience to download and then follow up with you? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Be ha- okay, well, everybody out there listening, just go to the show notes page for our, our interview with Bill, and uh, that download will absolutely be there.
2: Good. I appreciate that.
1: And if anyone wants to go to an experiential leadership training program in Costa Rica, you need to check that out too, because, uh, you know, Bill's got some really amazing things going on down there. So we just thank you so much for being and sharing and just for being the person that you are. We love your story and, and we didn't even get into all of it. Uh, there's so many, uh, facets. So thank you for being here and sharing this and your energy. What great energy. And so, uh, uh, John, I think uh, we need to have him on again and talk about kind of phase two.
0: Yeah, we'll have to do that, Bill. I'd love to. And just hey, as just we wrap up, everybody listening, just what final thoughts would you like to leave with everybody out there,
2: Bill? Well, take control of your life. Don't let the daily situations of life grind you down, uh, stay on top of it and do what you can be optimistic and, uh, never forget that there is a loving God that created a loving universe Mm. and everything is in our favor.
0: That's awesome. What a, what what a, just a great way to kind of wrap that up. Um, that has been so true in my life. Uh, just thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. Thank
2: you, Sandra. Thank you, John. I feel blessed that I was here today. (laughs) We do too.